0: You're listening to Oh My Pond with George Takei and Todd Beaton. We like to think of conspiracy theories as relegated to the most fringe extremes of society. But at a time when falsehoods proliferate on the Internet like never before, and when the President of the United States routinely campaigns and governs with lies... They have become ever more prominent in the mainstream imagination. On this episode of Oh My Pod, we'll take a look at the most prominent conspiracy theories and explore what it is that makes them take hold and what does that say about those who cling to them or about the society that enables them. Welcome to Oh My Pod. Hi, George. Good to see you as always. Hi, Todd. Another interesting show this week, I see.
1: Yes, this episode we'll be discussing hoaxes and conspiracy theories.
0: Sadly, they're all the more relevant in this era of Trump.
1: Yes, and if you think about it, conspiracy theories have sort of bookended
0: Trump's presidency, right? That's right. He rose to prominence politically advancing the conspiracy about... Obama's birth certificate and now he's been impeached
1: by the house Thanks to his obsession with the conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine and not Russia that interfered in the 2016 election So George, why do you think Trump is so
0: susceptible to these conspiracy theories? Well, I think Trump is basically an insecure and fearful guy Mm -hmm. at the core and overlaid with racism so uh, he is more susceptible to that than most normal people are, and he sort of transfers that to his supporters. Exactly. It seems well, b- people who are insecure want uh, their version of reality, not the you know the facts as they see them. Something that's more comfortable with them, and that's why the birther conspiracy was a a, a narrative that became more familiar to him. George, what are some of the conspiracy theories you remember over the years? Well, I mean, very personally, decades before Pearl Harbor, uh, in the media, there there was the f- uh, phrase, yellow peril, came from the Hearst newspapers. Uh, immigrants from Asia, Chinese and Japanese, were coming to California or to the West Coast and, in quotes, taking jobs from other people. No, they were uh, taking jobs at white people were not taking, like uh, working on the railroad, or working in the kitchens of uh, the restaurants, or doing all the kinds of work that people uh, uh, then did not want to do. And yet, they looked different. They were talking in a different language. They observed different cultures. And so white Americans were uncomfortable with that. They were seen as a threat. The Chinese in San Francisco um, built a thriving community called Chinatown. They were looked at as a, a threat to uh, others because the uh, Asians were becoming uh, settled and successful and self-sufficient financially and so the Hearst press with their yellow peril ca- started characterizing us Asian Americans as uh, evil as as cunning mm-hmm. as uh, conniving and plotting against white people. It seems from what you're telling me, it's, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. And that's why our democracy is so dependent on having an educated electorate. The pillar of our justice system is people who are educated who know what we stand for as Americans. And the more educated they are, the less susceptible they'll be
1: to the appeals of fear by our leaders, right? Which are, unfortunately,
0: those leaders are now controlling the White House. Well, yes. And the Senate. And there are people in this country who are ill-educated and therefore making less money or unemployed and who are angry and, and, and frustrated. And uh, uh, vengeful, mm-hmm. and they are the perfect people to consume yes. that hoax.
1: Well, we're going to speak with Ben Collins, who covers conspiracy theories for NBC News, and he'll walk us through the more prominent conspiracies to haunt the internet. And we'll speak with Talia Levin, who folks may know as Chick in Kiev on Twitter, about her take
0: on what the grandfather of all conspiracy theories is. Chick in Kiev <laughs> sounds fascinating. But first, A quick message about our sponsors. You're listening to Oh My Pod. I'm now speaking with Ben Collins, who covers the dystopia beat
1: for NBC News. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So can you start by defining dystopia beat?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. When I have to talk to an executive, I say I cover disinformation and extremism and how they handle each other and how the internet affects our everyday life, which recently is pretty dystopian. I cover basically how um, we interact with information that isn't right, and sometimes information that isn't right that makes us feel really good or gives us identity, and how that has sort of shifted geopolitics, and uh, specifically how crime is done, how you know mass murders happen now. So uh, it affects a lot of how the world works, unfortunately, now. So it has tendrils in pretty much everything that we do.
1: And it sounds like conspiracy theories are central to that.
2: Yeah, Conspiracy theories are the biggest part of it, I would say. You can't have extremism without conspiracy theories. You can't have deep-seated racist belief without uh, bad information, bad data, inhumanity, things like that. Um, and, And that's really a driving force in a lot of what's happening in the world right
1: now. So how did you get on to this topic?
2: I would say... A very different way than most people do. I I, I wasn't sitting around desperate to cover crazy people (laughs) with my life and time. I was covering sort of the internet and how the internet affected culture. And I woke up one day and my friend's fiance was shot and killed on live TV in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, Her name's Allison Parker. You might remember this story. Yes. Like a disgruntled coworker went and killed her on live TV. It was a big horrible thing. Um, And she was um, the girlfriend of uh, Chris Hurst, who's a, uh, a friend of mine from college. Uh, and um, I didn't really cover the story itself. I wasn't covering shootings or anything at the time. But I just kept an eye on Chris on the internet in the next few weeks. And what I saw on Google in the top results or YouTube or Twitter, or anything at all, was that he was a crisis actor, which is the belief that Chris worked for the FBI and he doesn't really exist and he's a fabrication uh, created by the government to try to make it so we have gun control. Um, no, I know Chris isn't that because I was in a like, terrible whiffable leagues and stuff with him. I, I, kn- I know for a fact that, uh, unfortunately, he is not a crisis actor for those people. So what I started to do was I started to call around. I started to tell people who were making these videos that I would talk to them and try to get their beliefs and why they believe these things, how they came to believe these things. And uh, at the end, I would just be like, look, I know Chris, and I know he's not what you say he is. Um, they, it didn't shake their belief right. that they were talking to somebody on the phone that they came to trust – Um, who had better information than they did. So um, over the next few years, those people that I talked to um, and the people around those people who learned how to game algorithms to make their information more public than real information, those people became the most powerful people in the world. Conspiracy theories became sort of the dominant thought process of our politics. And... With that, I had to sort of buckle up a little bit and become a more serious person.
1: Well, unfortunately, in the last few years, there's been plenty of fodder for you to cover. What do you think it is about Americans in particular or the right wing or political sort of believers that makes them susceptible to conspiracy theories?
2: I think we're all susceptible to conspiracy theories because often they're just better stories. You know, we get up on a day-to-day basis. We try to find things that, you know... Keep us interested in the news and in life itself, and um, frankly, you know, it's a lot more comforting to believe that there is a global cabal making your life worse or trying to take away your rights, and it's a lot better to be fighting against that thing, you know, posting against it or whatever on YouTube in comment sections and things. In that initial article I did about Chris, I I talked to this professor named Brian Keeley, who works at Pittsford College. In California, he told me that these people who believe this stuff are the last believers in an ordered universe, which means they are the last people who really believe that everything happens for a reason. Interesting. Okay. Um, and it's a lot easier to believe that, especially things like El Paso that happen. Um, if you are going to Walmart on the weekend, you don't want in the back of your mind that you know a crazy person could just come in and just kill my whole family.
1: You don't want that as you move about your life. So the idea of randomness being scarier than the idea that there is this grand plan, the scheme. It's the idea
2: that things just don't randomly happen in the minds of these people. There is an order. And if you get rid of the bad guy at the top, which for a lot of people now is Hillary Clinton or the deep state or whatever, if you get rid of this sort of malignant thing at the top, then everything will be fixed. And if you can fight against it by, like, voting for a guy who tells you that he's fighting against that thing Mm – Um, then you're doing your part, and it gives people a lot of hope. I don't blame a lot of people for feeling this stuff, but I blame the people who sort of know that it's not true and continue to push it.
1: I used to think that conservatives used to love the email forward, right? Because, oh, it was something that reinforced their preexisting beliefs, and there was no way to check it. It's just an email. Oh, let me forward this. No responsibility. But now that people do have the internet their fingertips yeah conspiracy theories seem to propagate even more how why is that so you know
2: the idea of innuendo and the premise of some people are saying has a lot more weight politically than hard and fast answers because a lot of times hard and fast answers sort of conflict with day-to-day stuff right the biggest QAnon video always talks about have you ever wondered why you are like a slave to your debt um and QAnon is about you know uh, satanic child-eating pedophiles, what does that have to do with this? It's the same thing. It's this idea that your whole, everything bad in your life is being oppressed by a larger premise, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's the beauty of innuendo. You don't have to have facts. You can just say like, I don't know, is it these people? Is it these people doing this thing? Is it this larger group doing this thing? That feeling is better than information. It's, you know, mm-hmm. Facebook and and Instagram have con- consistently tailored their algorithm to just the most amount of interactions and engagements, right. likes and shares and things like that. Right. right. So, you know, exponential forwarding of this stuff has increased the reward for people to do this sort of thing. Like, it hasn't increased um, any value of fact-based information right. on social media. It has just increased the, the value of feeling better about yourself by sharing this stuff.
1: When you said you talked to these people, people who are spreading these conspiracy theories, and they got to know you and trust you, but no matter what you said, they still believed what they believed. How can they hold both those uh, beliefs? That they trust you, but cannot be shaken from their belief in this story?
2: Because uh, in in this instance, facts don't matter to them. At the end of this story that I did about Chris a couple years ago, a guy i told him everything i was like look i know him there's no other way to put it i don't want to be angry at you but it's hard to not be angry at you right and he said look this these are just my beliefs this is just what i believe right and to them to that point it becomes like an ethereal concept like there's no piece of information that will just magically let people change their minds Um, and i don't mean shift their political opinion i just mean like literally absorb facts you have to tell people the sometimes profit incentive or like power incentive behind why they're being presented this information. Okay. So, you know, when- To pull the curtain? Exactly, yeah. When people start to understand that Alex Jones is a millionaire from selling supplements based on the fact that he thinks there's fluoride in the water making you gay, um, he sells, you know, he sells defluoridization kits, things like that, um, things that will shield you from the evils of the government. Once people start to realize they're being sold something, that's when Americans especially are like, oh, wait a second. Like, am I being duped here? They have to come to their own conclusion based on the messenger, basically.
1: We talked to a guy who had been sort of brainwashed by Fox News and the whole right-wing ecosystem of media. And he came out of it with the help of Sarah Silverman, chatting with him on Twitter, and it wasn't necessarily what the facts. Part of what broke him down was the fact that she was engaging with him respectfully. Yeah. She upended every all of his expectations about liberals. So he started asking, wait, why do you believe this? And realized everything he'd been told um, was a lie. Yeah.
2: And I think that this isn't a partisan thing. There are definitely political figures that feed into these spheres more than other people. And that may be a more partisan thing. But the idea that you know, people can be broken down by experience and people aim to build them back up with bad information, mm-hmm. that is absolutely not a partisan thing. Okay. You see this with anti-vaxxers and people who generally believe uh, that the government is trying to put stuff inside your kid's body to give him autism or to like, create some population control or something. This is this is a sort of – it started, a left, started as a left-wing idea. Now it's becoming sort of a right-wing idea as well. But do you know where that comes from? That comes from a person who's been very broken by a kid with sickness, with a kid with illness, or someone in their family who's ill. Or not even that. People who are um, – people who have just had a child are incredibly vulnerable and then go on the internet to read information about making their kids okay. Mm-hmm. And for years, this is what was happening. The first piece of information you were presented on Google and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook was lies. They were people selling you stuff. My colleague just did this story. It's true, unfortunately. Um, People are feeding their kids bleach under a different brand name, but it's bleach because they say it removes the autism because autism is in their intestines. Um, This is a thing that you would get in the early stages of search results about autism cures. So this is... About the human condition and how we handle the human condition with our media ecosystem. Um, I think once we move past this moment politically where we're predominantly you know, governed by fear of a specific race or fear of you know, the deep state or whatever, we can start to look at these things as not a partisan issue but something that we have to like, deal with in terms of who we are as people and start teaching kids that you know, fear should not be the
1: governing factor in their life. This notion that I believe what I believe is as strong as this is a fact. Where does that do you think come
2: from? That's a really good question. The psychology on this is um, it's it's about belonging. Usually, people say this a lot. Um, When you go down the path of studying this sort of thing, it it turns anthropological, which is not great. But usually, you wind up with like cult experts and de-radicalization experts. And if you you're allowing people who otherwise do not have a community, who are otherwise pretty lonely. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're stuck in a, like, in a basement because they're afraid of going outside. Or maybe they're, they're just like they had some bad things happen. They don't really want to leave the house anymore. And this provides them a space to do it uh, safely. They can exit at any time. When you see that, you don't see people leaving either. We see this with incels, for example. Um, on incel forums, you see people join these forums, be like, you know, women are the worst. They only want to be with chads, which is their word for like attractive men. And like, they radicalize each other, but some people make it out of that. Some people turn 22, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> so, like a lot of people do mm-hmm. and they don't think oh, I should go back to the incel forum and be like, actually, everything's fine now. I got a girlfriend and I got a job and life's fine. These people just live in these radicalization spaces. Okay. Um, and that's the issue, right? We, we, have, um, we have easy access to community. And that's, at the start of the internet, that was the best thing in the world. And now we realize we have easy access to all kinds of community. And that can be a neo-Nazi community. That can be you know, a baking
1: community. <laughs> so let's dig a bit into some of our favorite conspiracy theories. Can you explain to our listeners what QAnon is?
2: Sure. Uh, QAnon is an amalgamation of all of the greatest hits of the last 10 years in the fever swamp of the right-wing internet. It filled a space that was occupied previously by Pizzagate. Pizzagate is the idea that there was a specific pizza shop in Washington, D.C. that in the basement, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta, her campaign chairman, were running a child sex ring in a satanic uh, child-eating operation uh, out of the basement of this pizza shop. The pizza shop did not have a basement, so... That didn't really seem to work out right away.
1: And that was based on the emails that were hacked.
2: Yes. A a true brain genius who read these emails posted on Fortune and Reddit that if you replace the word pizza with little boy and hot dog with little girl, then you would see that they were clearly just eating children. That's really the premise of Pizzagate. A lot of people think this may have been a foreign intelligence operation. Um, I don't think there's a lot of intelligence involved at all, but um, I'm sure they. we do know for a fact they did push this this conspiracy theory. I have no idea if they came up with it. Um, however, uh, this sort of thing got pushed off the internet. They got deplatformed everywhere is the word. On Reddit, the Pizzagate subreddit was no longer allowed. They don't ban a lot of things, and they banned them. Um, you're still allowed on Facebook for some reason, but who knows why. Um, and then the, the problem is uh, a guy went into this pizza shop Uh, demanding to see the child sex ring with a gun, and he shot into into the pizza shop. Um, And this made many social media networks very nervous about this. So fast forward 10 months after that shooting, a guy on 4chan starts posting, um, as you get to sort of have a username there called a trip code, um, under this thing called Q. He says that the National Guard has been deployed, and this weekend Hillary Clinton is about to be arrested, her passport has been frozen. She can't leave the country. Now, none of that happened. That's the very first QAnon post of all time. Um, None of it happened, but it didn't matter. These posts were like every dream that could ever happen for conspiracy theorists, right? Like, it's all in one. It's like amazing. It's like a fever dream. So, they stuck to this guy. They're like, this guy knows what he's talking about. They determined that the word Q meant he had Q clearance, which is a Department of Energy clearance that allows you to know some secrets, not the sort of secrets that would... Uh, make you privy to, uh, like, an extrajudicial coup that is, that is like, overrunning the United States government. But, uh, again, it's not supposed to make sense. And for months and months, the, the, the lore grew. And the idea was there was eventually going to be a parade down the street of all of the pedophiles and the baby eaters in the government. And Donald Trump was secretly arresting all these people, putting them uh, into ankle bracelets, um, you know, Getting them all rounded up quietly. So, so for the one day it's eventually going to happen. These people will finally see justice. You know, and that, again, that feels really good. If you really hated Barack Obama, and it turns out he was eating kids, then boy, were you right. Unfortunately, uh, that has not happened for these people, and uh, it's been almost two years now. So, and they're still holding out. They're still believing it, and more more than ever. In fact, I would say Q has sort of become. A catch-all for Trump support for a lot of people. You see at these Trump rallies, people holding up Q signs. Yeah. The Secret Service has to do something about it. They try to make people take off Q T-shirts or leave if they're if they're wearing them because they realize this is a dangerous thing.
1: Wow. So the Secret Service of the United States is actually responding.
2: Yes, exactly. And, and the FBI too has put out a memo saying like these are this is dangerous stuff. Um, they are an important domestic terror group to look into. People have been murdered because they believe Q told them to do it. Like, one of them killed a mob boss recently um, uh, and wrote a Q on his hand at his sentencing. So it's
1: this stuff is absolutely pervaded in the real world. Right. That's the dangerous—I mean, it's all dangerous, but the moment it sort of transfers from online fever swamp to real-world action— that's where it's really sort of insidious
2: yeah that's where it, that's where it gets scary and it's not just staying on the internet now because so many people's identities are tied to what what they're saying online now that why would they why would they just make that a separate portion of their life it is who they are
1: it seems like an odd choice to go so over the top if you're gonna create a story like <laughs> the idea that you know there's child eaters and pedophiles like, why does that take hold? And why does that make sense for the creator of this conspiracy theory to go so over the top with? I would almost,
2: I would be certain that the person who created this is is just as confused as you are. But if you talk to people who study doomsday cults, they say this is exactly what happens. People get really attached to an idea that something's about to come. There are consistently days where these things are supposed to happen. People become convinced that they've done something to help you know, push back the doomsday um, with doomsday cults. So they think like, oh, maybe you know what? Maybe the maybe the deep state got us this time. So we have to keep fighting until it eventually happens. And you know, there are relatively, I wouldn't say sane people, but there are relatively normal people who move about their daily life who believe in this stuff. It's just religion. It's just it's it's a way for them to get by. And honestly, if you thought every political enemy you've ever had was about to get you know, like sh- in shackles, just march down the street in. Anytime between tomorrow and the next two years, you would be pretty excited about living your life, right? And that's what
1: this is. Yeah. It is – so it does sound like it's related to religion. I mean, obviously, it feels cult-like, but also, I mean, religion is about belief without facts.
2: It's, It's political wish fulfillment is really what I always call it. Um, and, and that's what happens with, with these Q people is they um, get constantly attached to the future. And it's just not a bad thing to me. Like, I, I get why people believe this. But it's the larger algorithmic problem that we have with Facebook and, and, and Instagram and things like that is, you know, if you refresh, you're going to get the next piece of the puzzle. No matter what it is. It's not about QAnon. Like, if you refresh, you're going to get the thing. You're going to get the next dopamine hit. And this allows you to do that on a political scale. When did we first
1: start to hear the term deep state?
2: Deep state has been around in conspiracy circles for a long period of time. This is a a word for, you know, longstanding public servants in the United States um, who conspiracy theorists believe, you know, could be lizard people or like weirdos generally. It's like, like very scary sounding stuff. But um, in reality, it's just bureaucracy. It's just civil servants keeping jobs for a long period of time to get a pension. So <laughs> scary. Yeah, it's very horrifying. Right. Like, do you remember when, like, Rod Rosenstein was about to leave and he had to, like, wait until, like, a certain service hour or something? That's what the deep state is, right? It's people who are trying to retire. But in the minds of, like, InfoWars and stuff, it's this concerted effort to make it so the United States government can't be ridden of all of this evil. So I get why it sounds scary, and I also get uh, that I live in reality and I've been at jobs where people were riding out the last few months.
1: It seems to me it's also a convenient sort of villain for Republicans to point to when they control government. Yeah, that that's what it is, right? They had the presidency. They had both chambers of, of Congress. And so there must be a villain for, you know, because it can't be us.
2: Well, when your political thesis is... When your entire standing in the world is victimization, which is what Donald Trump's campaign was about, it was like somebody's out to get us and all this stuff. When really no one else can be out to get you that has power, you have to invent that power. Correct. It's stand It's like this long-standing government bureaucracy. It's even better that you can't identify them by name, that they are faceless to you. And he could fire these people, like if they're on the NSC or whatever. Like they, he is. He could just get rid of them. He could have gotten rid of them years ago, but you
1: know. He
2: has not done that.
1: Nor would he want to. I mean, they're convenient. And that's
2: why also the media to him is – that that makes a lot of sense to him, right? He is like an expert TV watcher. And he sees this as very apparent to him uh, that, you know, these people do have some kind of power. They can make people feel emotions about kids locked in cages, for example. And, you know, once – he is out of enemies. This is a very good thing for him as well. There, it's sort of amorphous, you don't have to pinpoint specific anchors.
1: Well, it's crazy to have the term deep state coming out of U.S. senators' mouths and Twitter feeds. Like, it, I used to think it was sort of a fringe thing, but I mean, it really is a mainstream Republican talking point now.
2: Yeah, you know, the Republican Party says party now, it's just yes. that's that's just something that we know. So, like, the tying your allegiance to him in the mind of the voter it's very important because they have a different media ecosystem
1: than anyone else well thank you ben no, thank for you. shedding some light on this uh, this fever swamp that is the conspiracy theories of the internet and beyond
2: no thank you so much
1: I'm now speaking with Talia Levin, who is a writer and researcher working on an upcoming book about white supremacy online. Hi, Talia. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me on. Of
1: course. So in The Road to Unfreedom, Dr. Timothy Snyder, he writes that one of the reasons we were left vulnerable to interference by Russia in 2016 was our unique brand of conspiratology. What is it with Americans and our conspiracy theories?
3: well it's certainly possible that Americans have their unique flavor of conspiracy theory uh, and that culture, uh, I think conspiracy theorizing is sort of a natural human impulse, uh, and it speaks to a lot of sort of very deeply human and recognizable motivations. Um, you know, conspiracy is something you turn to when you feel disenfranchised, when you feel disempowered, when you feel as if the world as it currently is is sort of inexplicable to you. Um, And certainly our current moment uh, in America has a lot of very distinct ways in which people feel disenfranchised, lost in the shuffle, sort of disempowered. It's a a world that, you know, increasingly, you know, wealth and even the vectors of how we communicate with each other are sort of concentrated in the hands of a few people who are very powerful. Um, and I think that kind of social structure sort of lends itself to, to conspiracy theory. There was a study done that was mentioned in the excellent book, Republic of Lies, by the journalist Anna Merlan about contemporary American conspiracy culture these academics went through 250,000 randomly selected letters to the editor from various newspapers, and they combed through them to see which, how many letters uh, mentioned conspiracy or conspiracy-adjacent topics. And what that study found was that in moments of social upheaval and great change, people are much more prone to conspiracy thinking. And the last sort of humongous surge of conspiracy thinking came around the turn of the twentieth century, which was, as we're in now, a period of great technological change in which kind of the suddenly the terms of human life uh were changing really rapidly in a ways that maybe people felt disempowered by or disconnected from.
1: And obviously, at the moment, we have a conspiracy theorist in the White House, and his latest conspiracy theory about the DNC server being in Ukraine is actually driving foreign policy, apparently.
3: First of all, I think it is sort of innate to him, and you've seen that for a really long time. And certainly, he gave birth to the birther conspiracy theory. Um, You know, he was a man who, uh, who even now refuses to believe in the innocence of the Central Park Five. I mean, this is a man who is just sort of endemically in himself prone to um, to conspiracy type beliefs. But um, I think the other thing that's important is like we have pretty reliable data uh, based on the president's own tweets and and all sorts of sort of that court intrigue Maggie Haberman type reporting. That his information diet is really Fox News. I think on the American right, there's particularly at the current moment um, a strain of conspiracy thinking. Uh, and so a lot of times people are sort of flummoxed by Trump's tweet. when he's talking about DNC uh, servers, acid wash emails, you know what are these points that he, you know, he he basically has a set of reference points that might be unfamiliar to people who aren't avid Fox viewers, and in essence, what Trump writes is sort of fan fiction on Fox world.
1: And there's this sense of globalist elite pulling the string. I mean, that is a clear basis in history, right?
3: Uh, yeah, and occasionally this is more explicit than, than others. So the, the term globalist right, is a relatively recent development in the popular lexicon. Um, but it stands for, you know, there are a lot of historical analogs to it. It's a very resonant term in the sense that it sort of makes the conspiracy of the elite global. You know, it it says this isn't just, you know, your local problem. This is something that is infecting the entire world. The term globalist, you saw particularly in um, one of the last campaign ads that Trump ran right before the election was sort of this passionate greed against globalists. And it just so happened that in in the ad, sort of lambasting globalists and the rich and powerful, uh, every single person featured in that ad was Jewish. You had Janet Yellen and Lloyd Lloyd Blankfein. And I think it's just important to point out that the term globalist has some anti-Semitic resonance as well and is frequently used in that coded way.
1: So Talia, when we spoke earlier, you had mentioned that anti Semitism is almost the original uh, conspiracy theory. How do you see that uh, playing out in all the other conspiracy theories that we see today?
3: I think that the idea of anti Semitism being the OG conspiracy theory is definitely true in the West, sort of proto conspiracy theory that literally dates back millennia. Uh, So what happened was, you know, with Jews in in the Middle Ages, in Europe, you had this group that was sort of the, the only visible religious minority in a lot of societies that sort of held itself apart. Um, and so as a result, uh, and were socially disempowered, you know, in the sense that in lots and lots and lots of different countries, in like the 19th century, you have what called the emancipation of the jews suddenly jews can own land suddenly jews are full citizens and can you know participate but before that you had this sort of second-class citizenship for jews and as we know from our current states you know minorities and the politically disempowered are tremendously useful scapegoats for, for just about anything couple that in with very real antisemitism baked into christianity the most famous uh, iteration of that is called the blood libel, with a the conspiracy theory of the blood libel. This idea that Jews kidnap Christian children uh, at Passover and use their blood to make masa, which is like the traditional bread that, like flat, unleavened bread that you eat on Passover. It, it's this uh, sort of very seductive narrative in a way. Uh, it's like, you know there's evil among us. It's this sort of early exemplar of kind of the the theory of conspiracy, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to enact these sort of dualistic acts of evil. And you you see that theme come up again and again, this idea that, like, not only are the elites running rampant and doing awful things, they're doing it in, like, sort of this cartoonishly, Ritualistic way. You saw that in the the gate conspiracy here You see that in some of the, the QAnon stuff. I mean, just this idea that like not only are your enemies committing acts of evil, they're doing so in like a satanic. You know, they're wearing robes, they're drinking blood. And then in 1903, you have the publication of a text called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um which is this totally bogus, czarist forgery. It's almost immediately debunked, um, found to be largely plagiarized from a different work. But at any rate, it it reports to be sort of the minute of a meeting of the elders of Zion kind of sitting around being like, how do we dominate the world? And here's our nefarious plan. And it has a lot of legs. Oftentimes, conspiracy serves as a way to sort of confirm what people already want to believe. So biggest propagator of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in America is Henry Ford, who has been translated into English and publishes large portions of them in a newspaper he funded in Michigan called the Dearborn Independent, uh, And along with a series of essays about how evil Jews are, called the international view. Um, so you want to talk about globalists? Well, uh, you know, sort of, antecedent to that phrase is, is this idea of the international view.
1: So anti-Semitism really does infiltrate all of these conspiracies.
3: Yeah, and so that's, that's, well, that's the sort of advent of modern anti-Semitism. But you, you know, then you scratch any conspiracy community too hard. Well, you know who's at fault is it's it's the Jews. So flat earthers for people who believe that there's a vast conspiracy to cover up the fact that the earth is in fact flat. Not all of them, but a fair number blame the Jews for the plot to conceal the shape of the earth. So yeah, there's lots of people who fully believe that NASA is a Jewish plot to conceal the fact that the earth is flat well-meaning citizens. Um, so not only is anti-Semitism the OG conspiracy theory, it also forms the backbone of a lot of conspiracy theories that you might not sort of intuitively make the leap connecting with anti-Semitism.
1: And so you spend a lot of your time tracing the white supremacy movement online. I'm sure that involves reading a lot about these conspiracy theories. What are you finding?
3: A lot of nasty stuff. Nothing super fun and uh, psychologically wholesome. But a lot of people think of white supremacy as a movement primarily anchored in racial hatred. And they're not wrong. But I didn't quite realize until I really got deep into this stuff. It's just how much sort of the intellectual underpinning of the movement is really anti-Semitism. sort of the glue that lots of disparate factions together. White supremacy is fundamentally a movement aligned with the the political right and you see that in the way that it talks about the modern world and modernity as sort of inherently degenerate which is a word that was beloved of the Nazis and therefore is beloved of their like crappy internet protégés. There's a also an inherent belief that you know, gayness, feminism, uh, trans rights, uh, you know, women being able to work, all of these are plots to beneath the fertility of the white race. And so guess who came up with them? Uh, That's right. The Jews. So you have this idea that homosexuality itself is a Jewish plot. Jews invented transgenderism. Jews invented feminism. Jews are like fueling mass Integration with the sole desire of sort of eventually breeding out the white race. So in Charlottesville, um, you know, you had those famous chants of Jews will not replace us. Well, a lot of people thought, you know, that this is sort of a literal thing, but what they were referring to was something called the Great Replacement Theory, which is this idea that Jews are pushing mass migration, pushing interracial mixing with the goal of sort of eventually getting rid of all purebred whites, creating sort of a more docile and stupider mixed-race citizen. And so this was the theory, the Great Replacement Theory, um, has directly motivated, like, a number of white supremacists to death.
0: Uh,
3: It was the direct motivator for the massacre of eleven Jews in a Pittsburgh synagogue, and more recently on June 4 in Holland, Germany, um, there was an attempted attack on a synagogue, and the the attacker sort of filmed a video blaming Jews for, for feminism and for migration.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the threat that you feel the white supremacist movement poses to us in the 2020 election?
3: I have sort of two answers to this question. One. What we've seen over the past two years since the Charlottesville rally is sort of the, the receding of those members of the far right that maybe hoped to achieve a kind of political respectability and an entree into the world of electoral politics. The, the Richard Spencer, dapper or Nazi type has sort of been discredited. Uh, and then in Donald Trump, like extremists really had for the first time in a really long time, maybe since like Pat Buchanan, uh, a hope that some of their apocalyptic desires for a, an ethnically cleansed United States, for a white ethno state, could be achieved through electoral means. So, first of all, you had the Unite the Right uh, rally in Charlottesville end in uh, death and terror. Uh, and then you saw really both the social and uh, sort of belated half-hearted law enforcement crackdown on some of that white supremacist organizing. It was like they felt safe enough to put their head above the parapet and wave the swastika loud and proud and then found that there was actually considerably more social opposition than they had banked on. So who is left? Who is sort of left as the major influence in the white supremacist world? And the answer is, basically, the voices who are saying electoral politics, is, there's no future in it for us. Uh, you know, there's no future in trying to look respectable and sort of talk about the idea of a white ethnostate state as, like, kind of a viable political viewpoint. Uh, and our only hope basically is to enact as much terror as possible to destabilize America's social fabric and lead to, you know, what their ultimate desire is, which is basically a sequel to the civil war, uh, a race-based civil war. So what you have now, the people who are the loudest voices are uh, people who are engaging in stochastic terror which is the kind of rhetoric that will drum up violence, you know, trying to get people who are subscribing to their channels and listening to their podcasts and engaging with their rhetoric to go out and shoot up a synagogue, shoot up a black church, um, engage in politically motivated violence. And so I think a really opportune time for that kind of violence, and we saw this before the 2018 midterms with the Pittsburgh Massacre, what better way for a group that's sort of bent on creating as many wounds and risks as they can in America uh, than to take advantage of like a superheated uh, super divided political moment and engage in as much terror as possible? And so I think what you may see, racially motivated terror in the run-up to the 2020 election.
1: Now, many are still looking at the Republican Party as as their vehicle to political power now?
3: Um, I don't know about many. There are a few. There are certainly local political... If you look at, for example, like the, the ways uh, in which white supremacists uh, try to infiltrate local GOP parties is largely in like, super blue cities where the GOP is sort of a stump. So this has been a big problem in Philadelphia, um, where you have people affiliated with the Proud Boys, essentially taking over the GOP there, and then in sort of small towns where you have these sclerotic, not particularly active Republican organizations that then are vulnerable to infiltration by white nationalists. I would say that the primary ideological difference at the moment between the Republican Party and the far right is like how open they're willing to be with anti-Semitism and otherwise like they're pretty though.
1: So looking ahead to 2020 how can we combat this um, in our own lives online offline what what do you recommend?
3: So I'm going to say something that might not be super popular with some of your listeners I think that it's time for a lot more people to start defining themselves as anti fascists. And to stop plucking their tongues and wringing their hands when it comes to people who are doing the work of boxing out Nazis when they're marching on the street, who are doxing people who are part of the Klan and part of these hate groups, you know, to stop saying, like, you know, we've got to be civil, we've got to be better than them, we can't really engage in any sort of actual opposition, otherwise we're no better than the Nazis, because what you say when you say that is that your self-conception as sort of a civil, neutral person is more important than the lives of Jews and Black people and trans people and gay people. What you're saying when you say that is my idea of myself as a reasonable liberal and not one of those scary mass anti-fascists. Um, is more important than saving the country from a deeply violent, irredeemable, and toxic cancer of a movement. Whereas my feeling is, you know, I have come to, and particularly over the course of reporting this book, to find myself as an anti fascist um, to say there's absolutely no amount of acceptable <laughs> Nazism in this country. This is something that must be stamped out. It must be stamped out rather ruthlessly, but I think it is time for us to engage in passionate and uncompromising anti-fascism, and that can look a lot of different ways. Doesn't all look like putting on a mask and throwing punches? That's like a super minority of what anti-fa and anti-fascists do. A lot of it is just like, what racist groups are in my area? Um, You know, let me take a look. Uh, Let me see what they're up to oh, they're having a rally, you know, let's see if we can get their permit revoked. Or let me see if I can Google around and, like, figure out who, you know, okay, like, there's this, you know, guy who's in the clan or me on Facebook and I wonder if his employer knows. Like, there are lots and lots of different ways to do it. I think it's high past time. People were a lot more vocal and a lot less compromising about it. Being an anti-fascist, is not a shameful thing to be it is the only thing to be at this moment in history um and to head off the terror threat of 2020 at the past we need people to stand up
1: well that is an interesting perspective for sure thank you so much talia for joining us on oh my pod and good luck with the book
3: yeah thank you so much
1: George, there's a recent conspiracy theory that's been spread on white nationalist message boards that seems to be blowing up recently. Basically, after Democrats took the houses of the state legislature in Virginia this year, the Democratic governor of Virginia proposed some gun control measures and some right-wing counties in Virginia stood up to that, said, we're going to be Second Amendment sanctuaries. And what this white nationalist started to spread was that The governor and democratic lawmakers were sort of getting ready to shut off internet, to shut off electricity, um, and target some of these right-wing areas to forcibly seize guns. This, of course, has been met with thousands of shares, likes,
0: engagements. So what's your take on this? There's enough of uh, a little bit of history that they can build on to to expand and uh, densify their uh, fictional narrative mm-hmm. and they run with it without really knowing all the details. Uh, all they need to do is do a little fact checking, but they're receptive for hearing it because like r- rich soil. And to your point, it, it's comfortable because
1: it reinforces their pre-existing exactly. notions about Democrats wanting to take away their guns. So that's why this is an effective fiction right? And exactly. I think you could say that about all conspiracy theories that take root. Um, and that's what makes them so insidious is that they pl- play on a pre-existing narrative that people think is already true
0: exactly. and lights that sort of wick. And we have a person that has a flamethrower to light many wicks. This man is the leader of uh, and the creator of all these fictional narratives, and people eager to buy that, uh, are there to light their torches and start a bonfire. Absolutely, and <laughs> it brings back memories of uh, Charlottesville, mm-hmm. torches, mm-hmm. people carrying torches, saying Jews won't replace us. Mm-hmm. The head man in the White House says there are good people on both sides. Little steps that start adding to the credibility, believability, and becomes, in some people's minds, a fact. Right. All these uh, uh, conspiracy theories begin with an innate, organic, at the core, hate. Hate of people that are different from them.
1: Absolutely. And it really is fascinating to think about anti-Semitism
0: as the granddaddy of all conspiracy theories. But it makes sense. Talia made an excellent case.
1: Yeah, and it's sad when people would rather believe there is a grand conspiracy to explain the world around them, no matter how absurd or dangerous, rather than accept that that's just how the world is, right? With all its randomness and mystery.
0: But that is a world we live in now, and with the Internet. These fictions are all too easy to spread.
1: Well, thanks, George. This was a good episode.
0: It was a fun discussion, but a chilling one at the same time, sobering one at the same time. We've got some work to do to spread facts, not fiction. This has been Oh My Pod. George Takei's Oh My Pod is produced by Todd Beaton, Elizabeth Friedman, Evan Brechtel, Lorenzo Tione, Jay Kuo, and Tom Gerudo. Special thanks to Gotham Podcast Studio.